thank you for joining me for another edition of Ask Pastor Trav, where I'm trying to take some uh, common questions that are sent to me or ones that have been asked throughout the years and address them to see what the scripture says. Uh, this episode, we're going to look at some of the most common questions surrounding this week. Today is the day that we celebrate Palm Sunday around the world as when Jesus came into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey and fulfilling Old Testament prophecies all over the place, leading up to his death on Friday and his resurrection the following Sunday, which we would celebrate as Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. So in this week's edition, we're going to be looking at these questions regarding Jesus' death and resurrection. Question number one, did Jesus have a substitute on the cross? Number two, did Jesus actually die? Three, do the Gospels agree about the resurrection details? Four, is the tomb really empty? And five, do the disciples lie about the resurrection? So these are important questions. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Question number one is, did Jesus have a substitute on the cross? And this may be something you've never even considered, and you might think, is that even an important question? Well, if we look at the uh, situation in the world today, there are five major world religions that anyone would say are kind of the movers and the shakers that are um, kind of advancing cultures all around the world. And those religions would be Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Now, there are plenty other of religions, and there's also plenty of other outshoots uh, of all of those religions, but those five, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism are the five kind of mainstay world religions that have really been affecting and navigating uh, just the societies all around the world for years now. And one of those religions uh, really came up with this theory that Jesus actually had a substitute on the cross, and that is the religion of Islam. So if, if a, a Muslim was to read their holy book, which is the Quran, uh, it would say that in there, that instead of Jesus actually dying on the cross, they would believe uh, a few different things about Jesus that um, we that would disagree as a Christian or what uh, our scriptures would say. So in our scriptures, we would see that Jesus uh, believed is the Son of God, uh, God in the flesh dwelling on earth, uh, and that he died on the cross. In Islam, in their holy book called the Quran, they would say that God could not have a, a son, so therefore Jesus is not the Son of God. They would say that Jesus was a great prophet, but as a great prophet, he was never God in the flesh. He was never son of God. Uh, and they would really push back against that. And so one of the things that they teach, in fact, uh, I'm going to read it to you uh, from the Quran. Uh, this is uh, in, in Shirat 4, where it says, they say, speaking of Christians in boast, uh, or, uh, sorry, they, they say about um, the Romans and the Jews and different um, groups that came together to be a part of Jesus' crucifixion. It says, we killed Christ, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But And this is their response. But they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For of a surety they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power wise. So here's this thought. Uh, where, where most people would not, uh, unless you've studied Islam, you wouldn't understand this, but Muslims are not against the person of Jesus, but they do view Jesus differently than, say, what Christians would. They also view him differently as what Jews would. Jews would see Jesus as a false messiah, a, a false prophet. Islam would say that he was a prophet, but he was not God. And Christian and Christians would say, well, he, he was a 
prophet, priest, and king. He actually uh, was all the things that he said he was. So all these three religions can't be correct at the same time because they all three disagree about the identity of Jesus. So Islam that reveres Jesus as a prophet, but would say Jesus was in the line of a great slew of prophets. Uh, They would consider Adam as the first prophet. Jesus was one of the later prophets. And then Muhammad was the last and final and greatest of the prophets. But they would not see Jesus as the son of God. But they do revere him so much that they believe that he didn't die. They believe that Allah um, would brought him up to heaven and actually never went to the cross. Now, they know that obviously there's historical uh, so much push that Jesus, uh, that this figure died on the cross. But um, Muslims would say that what happened is that right before Jesus got to the cross, a substitute took his place. Some people believe it was Simon of Cyrene, if you remember uh, in the gospel accounts, that Jesus had been beaten so severely that as he was trying to take the cross that he passed out and the soldiers grabbed a passerby. One of the guys' name was Simon of Cyrene, just happened to be there with his family, said, you carry his cross for a while. Uh, Islam would say that possibly uh, Simon of Cyrene was the individual who carried that cross. Some people believe it was Judas Iscariot. That was God's way of getting to Judas who had betrayed this wonderful prophet Jesus that actually um, right before they went to the cross, Judas was the substitute for Christ. And other people just say it was just some other man, some other passerby. It may not look alike that was staged or mistaken or whatnot. But this theory allows people who um, believe in the Quran that says that, no, God didn't allow Jesus to die. He was just taken up to heaven, as you would see, as we would know in our uh, Old Testament, uh, Enoch, as well as Elijah had that happen. They believe that Jesus kind of just went up to heaven without dying. And, and the thought is, is that Jesus was so holy that God wouldn't allow him to die, so he had a substitute. Here's why this is so important. This is more than just a minor discrepancy or disagreement between world religions. Our entire Christian faith is based on the fact that Jesus is our substitute. Not that he needed a substitute, but he actually is our substitute. So the message of the gospel is that I deserve the cross, you deserve the cross, and Jesus was our substitute on the cross. And so any Christianity, uh, it can't be Christianity if it is somehow that Jesus got a substitute because the purpose of which he came to, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He had to go through the cross before he went to that place of exaltation. And so uh, if you look at the scriptures, all of these scriptures do not agree on this, uh, about what the purpose and even who was on there. But the Christian uh, message, the, the Bible is unashamedly saying that Jesus Christ actually did die on the cross, but he also uh, didn't stay in the tomb, but he was resurrected. So for those who believe that there, uh, that Jesus had a substitute on the cross, that changes the entire Christian message, the entire purpose for which Jesus came. Question number two is, did Jesus actually die? Now, you may think we just addressed that, but this is actually different. Uh, This is something called the swoon theory, okay? Let me explain where this happened. Years and years ago, there were a lot of um, people who were very uh, against, antagonistic to the Christian faith. And one of the things is that as they looked and their artifacts, as they began to study history, as they began to even uh, look through different writings that even Jewish people would have, okay? So men that would not have followed Jesus as Savior and Lord, as they began to look at the, these situations, one of the things that they realized was you can't deny that there was a man named Jesus who lived 
around this time uh, in this area and that for what we know, the entire world itself has never been the same since he came. And and part of the issue is, is that because of his life and supposed death and resurrection, this world has been flipped upside down with his disciples going all over the place to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So the problem is, is that people can't deny that Jesus lived, uh, and, and people cannot deny the fact that this early church, these, these ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and, and you name it, like that they turned the world upside down with a message. You can't deny that something happened here, that, that Jesus lived, that he died. But the problem is, is that no one, if you're against the message of the gospel, you can't give in to the fact that he defeated death. Because if Jesus was resurrected, that means without any stretch of the imagination that Jesus is God. And so they know that to be able to discredit Christianity, they have to take away the empty tomb. They have to come up with some other version of what happened. So this is what came out with the swoon theory by people who would be called scholars many, many years ago. Now, when you hear this, you're not going to think it sounds very much of a scholarly opinion, but I want you to show how desperate they are to grasp some type of theory to alleviate the possibility that Jesus could be alive and defeated death. So the swoon theory is this, is that Jesus endured such harsh punishment, pain, beatings, you name it, so such devastating situation that it appeared that he died on the cross, but in actuality he didn't die, he swooned. He passed out. He went into a comatose state. This is what the swoon theory is, that Jesus did not die, but instead he was beaten so severely that he went into a coma. And induced by the pain and the loss of blood and fluids and you name it, he went into a comatose state. So as the soldiers look on the cross and they see that he's not moving and they're poking him and checking for signs of life, they mistakenly think he's dead and they take him off the cross before he's actually dead. And in this theory, no one checks his heartbeat, no one checks his pulse, they just begin to wrap him up. So that's on Friday. What happens on Sunday morning is this man who has been brutally beaten in a coma now finds himself, and also he's been mummified, right? He's completely covered in cloths. Somehow on Sunday morning, he wakes up and coming out of this coma, coming out of this depleted, dehydrated, um, stricken state of humanity, he unwraps himself He moves the tomb away, this huge stone that it took a couple men to put in place. He moves that. He gets rid of the guards and then comes into the disciples without anyone else seeing him and somehow emboldens these men to go take on the world being willing to die to themselves. Now, does that sound a little bit ridiculous to you? It does me as well. So, So here's the thing. It shows you how desperate some people are to discredit the resurrection of Jesus because they know that if the tomb is truly empty, Jesus is who he says he is. He's the son of God and he's alive today. So they're, they're so desperate to discredit it somehow. So how do they do it? They, they come up with the swoon theory. Jesus wasn't dead. He was in a coma and then he woke up on Sunday and he appeared. Uh, he told everybody that he had defeated death, but in actuality, he just woke up from a medically 
uh, a medical coma, right? So, so here's a way to think through it, right? It's highly, highly unlikely that Jesus survived uh, all these medical conditions that these gospel writers say. And you may think, I, I didn't know they listed the goss, um, these medical conditions. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to notice that they say certain things. They give context clues that much later, modern medicine can say, oh, they said that and they didn't have a word for it. But now we have a word for it. Give you an example. Um, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that the disciples, so, so Peter, um, James, and John are fishermen, right? And they're a little bit further removed from Jesus. And they look at him and they say, it's like he was sweating drops of blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd ever use that terminology just to say he seems stressed out. No, the, these fishermen said, you know, when he was praying, he looked so overwhelmed, it looked like he was sweating drops of blood. My Modern medicine, years and years later, they have a term for that. It's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis is when a body is under such incredible stress and anxiety that the blood vessels burst and, and the blood starts getting in the sweat pores and, and coming out literally like that. So a group of fishermen, they don't know the word hematidrosis. It probably wasn't even a condition that people even mentioned back in those days because they didn't know what that was. But these fishermen say, you know what, it was wild because it looked like he was sweating drops of blood. In actuality, what they're saying is, Here's this medical condition that's going on. So just in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus is under some intense emotional anxiety and stress about what's about to take place. So if if the swoon theory is correct, he survives hematidrosis. He survives flogging. uh, And flogging was something called 40 minus 1 lashes because 40 lashes were thought to kill a man. So they would just take one away, basically beat you to the point of death where you were so bloodied up, so dehydrated that you could barely even function. That's why we see Jesus passing out and and falling down on the cross. It's not because he was weak. He was literally at the point of death. Even before they crucified him, they had beaten him so severely. So the flogging led to, uh, most people would say, the hypovolemic shock uh, based on some of the things that he's showing. The crucifixion leading to a cardiac arrest that as he is feeling his heart about to beat its last, he can look and say, it it is finished. There's a spear stuck in his side uh, indicating that, and and because of that, we see that there was blood and water took place. What does that that mention as John would make that unique comment? Well, modern medicine once again would come along and say, oh, that means that period periocardial effusion took place uh, where, where all these kind of things, the heart stopping and whatnot, and the, and the body is releasing um, these fluids. It, it, it's showing us this. So it's unlikely that anybody could survive all those things, right? And most likely all of those things would have killed someone. If someone's sticking a spear just close to your heart, you'd think that would have done them in. But it's even more unlikely if that person has been in this medical condition since Friday, that he could somehow awake from his comatose state, unwrap his grave clothes on his own, remove a gigantic stone with nail-scarred hands, right? Walk miles with nail-scarred feet and impress these masses of disciples on Sunday that somehow he had defeated death. Does that sound remarkable to you? It would to me as well. In the type of medical condition that he would been in at that point, it would not cause them to worship him as Lord. It would cause them to want to nurse him back to health. They would try to keep him away. How in the world could Jesus go through all these physical things, roll around the stone, get rid of these guards, go into the disciples and say, man, I have defeated death. Worship me. It wouldn't have happened. Somehow, these disciples were now willing to go to their death based on this. So does it seem like that Jesus just swooned or passed out or was in a coma? Not a chance. Jesus physically died. 
And the fact is, is that you don't want to credit him with the resurrection because if you do, you have to listen to everything else that he says. Question number three, do the gospels agree about the resurrection details? This is a question that I've been asked numerous times in my life and one that honestly uh, I wrestled with the first time that I ever read through the entire Bible. So if you get to the New Testament and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors about the same story. They're all biographies of the life of Jesus. But Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. Mark writes to the action-packed Romans. Luke writes to more a Gentile um, audience, and he's an, a doctor, very analytical in the details. John is a Jewish evangelist who's wanting to really uh, really pound home the theological significance of what Jesus did. So it's like these four gentlemen, right? It's like that they're all standing on the corner, and they've watched this car crash happen, okay? And they're all standing at different corners. They all saw the same thing happen. But then a reporter comes by and says, hey, can you tell me about what happened in that crash? Can you tell me about what happened in that crash? And he goes around. And what happens is that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the details around the crucifixion and resurrection, the same picture comes together. There was a car crash, right? There was these cars that ended up. But some of the details that they report are very different than one another. And that's to be expected, quite honestly, because some of them are going to notice certain things. Some of them are going to include certain names that they think are important, but other people may not know those names. So let me give you an example. So some people would look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and say, hey, the story is not exactly the same. If the story was precisely detailed exactly the same, you would probably discredit it because you'd say, oh, well, Mark wrote it and then these three guys just copied off his paper. But all four of them write different details about the same story to make sure you understand different contexts. Let me give you an example. While they all agree on primary issues, they do vary on secondary details. Okay, so let me say that again. They agree on primary issues, but they vary on secondary details. So as far as the time of when these women saw the resurrection. Let me read you what it says. In Matthew 28, 1, it talks about the time at at dawn. Well, Mark 16, 2 says just after sunrise. Luke 24, 1 says very early in the morning. And John 20, verse 1 says while it was still dark. Now, you may look at those and go, well, those are four completely different times. No, they're not. While it's still dark is at dawn and just after sunrise where it's starting to brighten up, which is very early in the morning, all four of those things are the same time of day, just spoken from a different way. It honestly gives more credibility to all four of their messages that they say it through their own voice, that they look at it through their own lens. So the time, while it may seem like it's different details, it's the same time of day, just different ways to say it. Also, the assembly that's gathered around the tomb has um, really confused some people through the years. Give you an example. Speaking of that uh, resurrection Sunday morning, in Matthew, he says in chapter 28, verse 1, that the women that were there at the tomb were Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark 16, 1 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome. Well, wait a minute. Is that the same person? Well, the other Mary, it would make sense, could be the other Mary that is the mother of James and Salome. So what's happening there? So Matthew's audience 
just knew when you said Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, because there's a lot of women named Mary at this time, okay, a lot of women, okay, it's almost as much as like you would think about a, a, a convent with a bunch of nuns in it, okay, there's everybody's named Mary here. Um, so there's Mary Magdalene, and it says the other Mary. Matthew's audience knew that. Now, Mark's audience, obviously, they needed a little bit more description because he says Mary, the mother of James and Salome. So most likely, Mark, who's writing to a Roman audience, may go, oh, we yeah, we know about James. James and Salome. So it's their mom. Oh, gotcha. He brings in that detail that either wasn't important to Matthew's audience or helped make sure that Mark's audience really knew. In Luke chapter 24, uh, it says, they went to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, wait a minute. Now we've got the two Marys. We've also got a woman named Joanna and then we've got other women. So what does this mean? Well, possibly Luke, the very analytical, detailed, investigative guy who's going to figure out every single thing. For Matthew and Mark, it was important that these two figures were known. These two Marys that everybody knows, they were the ones you can go talk to them. But Luke goes, now wait a minute. Those are the two people that got interviewed the most and that talked the most and were kind of the spokespeople for the group. But there was Joanna and a bunch of other women. He is one of those personalities that has to stick right to the details to make sure everybody was included. So it doesn't change the story. It's just for the sake of Matthew and Mark's gospel. Hey, here are the two spokeswomen. These are the ones that were always talking. These are the names that you'll know more than anyone else. But then you look at John chapter 20, verses one through two. It says, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And when someone says, we do not know where they have laid him, as she says this to an angelic being. And you go, wait a minute, it only says Mary Magdalene. So where are all these other people? Once again, it does not say that Mary, the mother of James and Salome, is not there. It doesn't say that Joanna is not there. It just highlights on a pivotal character because in this type of writing, you've got to understand, they use the entire life of Jesus. In 28 chapters, they get the most important person who's ever walked on the earth, his entire story, in 28 chapters. You're not going to get into every single detail. You just can't. Not in those days of, of um, scripting and, and writing something uh, by hand over and over and over again. And also those details were not so important. They're condensing the story. They're using names that were important for people to know. And so they would take out certain details. This makes sense, though, because if you think about it, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Satan comes in to Adam and Eve's homestead there in the Garden of Eden, comes along and says, hey, are, are you sure that God said this? And he's talking to the woman. And from Genesis chapter 3, I think down to verse 6, there's no mention of Adam whatsoever. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know if he's out uh, working in the yard, if he's walking the dog, if he's watching ESPN. Like We have no clue what Adam is doing there, right? And then also it says that Eve, when she saw that the food was desirable to make herself wise, she took it and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. And you go, wait a minute, you mean Adam's been here the whole time? Why didn't they mention that? Because he didn't have an important part in the story up to this point. He was sitting there being passive and not saying a word. So in this, it doesn't mean that the story changed. It just meant that wasn't a detail that was important. So when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it mentions different uh, women's names, but just some are more descriptive than the others. And some highlight certain characters, certain individuals that certain audiences would know by name or know their family members to make sure if you wanted to corroborate their story, you could. (music) 
Number four, is the tomb really empty? Now, that is a great question because a lot of people today would say, once again, it's hard to deny that there was a historical figure named Jesus who made a whole lot of ruckus about 2,000 years ago that the world has yet to recover from, right? It's hard, hard to deny that. But here's the thing that, uh, that a lot of people would say, well, maybe if, if we could just find the tomb, then obviously if he died, there should be a place where the body is. Well, wouldn't you think that probably the most popular, polarizing, um, miraculous man that's ever walked this earth, don't you think somebody would be able to point to a tombstone somewhere? I mean, some, there's a great. There's got to be a grave somewhere. Every other historical figure kind of memorialized somewhere, and yet we can't find that empty tomb. Why is that? Well, first off, you need to know that the tomb is known as Joseph's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Uh, found out that he was a disciple of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 61. Uh, we know he's a member of the Sanhedrin, so he, he's somebody important in that Jewish community. Um, he did not consent to Jesus's crucifixion as mentioned in Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 51. But his high standing gave him access to Pilate. So you go, okay, so what does that mean? It's still known as Joseph's tomb today because Jesus only borrowed it for a couple nights. Like that's all he was there for. So it's not Jesus's tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb that he gave to Jesus out of compassion and concern and allegiance to him. But Jesus didn't stay there. It was known as Joseph of Arimathea's because honestly, Jesus didn't need it that long. Kind of a bed and breakfast. He was in and out and he's alive today. So the tomb is known as Joseph's tomb. Two, the tomb was guarded by trained soldiers. So how do we know if the, the tomb is really empty? These trained soldiers, these Roman soldiers were impressive kind of guys. In fact, one of the reasons why crucifixion was such a powerful, reliable form of execution is because the Roman government had it this way, that if the guy you crucified, you nailed uh, the, the nails into his hands and, and to his ankles, if, if you uh, had any type of way where your guy that you crucified got off the cross, the Roman rule was this, you take his spot. So these guys were very diligent to make sure that if they put someone on the cross, they were not coming off. So these soldiers are not just your run-of-the-mill kind of guys that really can't get their stuff done. They are serious about their work. They're good at it. And so because the Jews were aware of Jesus' teaching, he kept telling people that he was going to resurrect. They asked for Roman guards to, uh, to ensure that the body wasn't stolen in the middle of the night. We read that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 through 66. And so the Roman officials who don't want any more, um, uh, all the issues that they were going on, any more distractions in their uh, town, they, they said, fine, we'll put some of our Roman soldiers there. And yet somehow something happened that night, that morning, that sunrise, that the body's no longer there with Roman soldiers being guarded. So once again, if it's just a common grave and no one's there, but this, everybody knew Roman soldiers were at the tomb and something happened. So... Guards were actually paid off to tell people that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body. Matthew uh, reports that in chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. And once again, you've got to imagine that is absolutely the worst thing that you could ever have as your reputation, that a bunch of Jewish fishermen beat you up in the middle of the night and took your job. You're a Roman soldier, right? You're the best of the best. And yet somehow they were willing to go forward and say, no, no, the disciples took the body in the middle of the night, saying they could not give credit or establishment because they knew there, there's nothing that they could do about it. The body was gone. And so Matthew's account says, yeah, they were paid off to tell everyone and to lose their reputation, but to get money, they said, okay, that's, that's fine. 
So that to say that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body. We also know this, that I believe that we know the tomb is really empty because if you think about the version of the story that came out, it's remarkable. Because here's what's happened. The tomb was seen empty by women first. Now, I know this. I believe women are a lot more attuned to details than men, okay? And I think that goes back from the very, very beginning, okay? But in Jesus' time, a woman's word was not to be trusted even in a court of law. In fact, you could have 100 women versus one man in the court of law, and the man's testimony was to be more confident and trusted in than 100 women altogether saying the same thing didn't have as much weight as that one guy. Now, we live if in that culture. Can you imagine if you were going to start a lie? If you wanted to start a movement that Jesus's body had, uh, that Jesus had defeated death and he was alive and the body was in the tomb, the worst thing you could ever do, complete suicide to your plan, is to have women to be the first eyewitnesses to this fact. It completely destroys your whole um, mission in this uh, right away by just having women as the first. This story could not have been made up because the women are there at the tomb and the men are still back at the house unbelieving the whole thing. If you were going to come up with a lie, you would never in a thousand years put women as the first eyewitnesses. So why? That detail alone is one of the most convincing arguments that you will ever find that Jesus is alive today because the church did not move away from something that they would think would be detrimental to the cause because they said, no, no, no. Jesus esteems women. Women are disciples in this whole plan of what Jesus is doing to reach the kingdom. This is not something we're going to hide from. This is the story. This is the way that God worked it out, that women were the first ones at the tomb because they were attuned to what they felt like was right to do while the men were still back at the house, right? This is a part of the story, and it's not a part to be ashamed of. It's a beautiful thing. In a, in a world where a woman's word was not to be trusted, these disciples say the first people that saw it, we're the women. That should show you right now the tomb is empty because of just that detail. But also just realize this, that the tomb was never memorialized. So Jesus appeared to Peter. We know that. He appeared to the uh, women. He appeared to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, 10 disciples at once, and then 11 when Thomas came back in the room. And there's about 40 days of appearances when he's on the earth. And it, it says in 1 Corinthians um, that he appeared to over 500 disciples altogether before he ascended into heaven. And so Throughout all of this, you have all these people that are saying all this, and you cannot go to anywhere in the world that says that is where Jesus was buried. Why? Because he wasn't in there for long. He went in there on Friday, he rested on Saturday, and on Sunday he was back alive today. And you can't find his grave because it's not there. And the fifth and final question for today is this. Did the disciples lie about the resurrection? Okay, so if we come down to that, could quite possibly, let's just say that maybe they, it was crazy how they started it, but that women were going to be the voice piece for them. Maybe maybe that is true. Okay, Maybe that could be true, that they, they, they're coming up with a lie, that the disciples say, we're going to let the women be at first of the tomb, but the men are the ones who are going to beat up the guards, take them out, we're going to steal the body. So this, this is how I consider it, right? Uh, these 11 disciples... They go back home on Friday night. Jesus is dead. And they go, what are we going to do? This is absolutely horrible. And in sorrow and grief, they try to fall asleep that night. Saturday, one of the disciples looks at the other 10, remaining 10. Judas has killed himself. There's 11 of them now. One of them looks at the remaining 10 and says, I got an idea. 
Everywhere we used to go, we were the talk of the town. The red carpet was rolled out to us except for the last few days here uh, because of all the stuff that Jesus was doing. If we could convince the masses that Jesus was alive, people would be just in awe of us again. And we'd be kind of the, the focal piece. And maybe we could just, well, how can we do this? And, and they concoct a plan, right? They work together. Hey, it's 11 of us. We can do this. There's probably two or three Roman soldiers there. We, we, we can do this. And they come up and they come up on the tomb. They, they beat up. They surprise these Roman soldiers. They, they take them out. They roll the stone away in the middle of the night without anybody knowing it. They take the body of Jesus. They take it um, about 500 yards down that path. They go to this tree. They take 12 paces to the right and then left past this rock. And that's where they bury Jesus. And they all know about it. They cover it up, those 11 guys. And they say, okay, from this point on, we're going to tell everybody. The women will come here in the morning, and we won't even let them know, but they're going to say that the body isn't here, and then we're just going to jump in later, and we're going to say this. And then all of a sudden, people aren't going to be listening to Jesus preach anymore. They're going to be asking for Peter to preach, and James to preach, and John to preach. And we're just going to continue to keep this momentum going. So what we need you to do is, everybody, this is the story. Let's practice it again. Let's practice it again. Now, could that have happened? Absolutely, it could. Without a doubt, I think that could have been a possibility of what happened. But if you look at the historical account, something very unique takes place that really takes that off the table. And here's why. All of those disciples, every single one, were killed, martyred for their faith, except for John. All those disciples were killed, and they were all killed independent of each other. So mob mentality is like this. If 11 of us are together and they're about to put us on the firing squad, I might be able to mob mentality, come on guys, let's go to the grave saying this, right? But if you, that, that'd be hard, but if you separate us, right? And so you got Andrew over here, and then you got Bartholomew over here, and you're telling me that in 11 different places, someone basically says this, stop saying that Jesus rose from the grave or else we're gonna kill you. One of those guys, if it's a lie, one of those guys is going, all right, the gig is up. I'm, I'm not going to death for a lie. I'm not doing this. I'm going home. I'm going back to the fishing business. I'm getting out of this. And someone would say, crack under pressure at the very last bit. I don't care what the rest of them are doing. I'm not going to die. I need to tell you this. We stole the body. We beat up the Roman guards. We did this. We did that. We moved here. If you go to this tree, these many paces over here, past this rock, you'll find the body. Jesus was not the son of God. He was not the Messiah. He was just a normal man, a normal prophet. He's dead. We can all pack up and go home. And yet not one of those disciples did it. And yet they were all independent of each other. You know how Peter was killed? He was killed, crucified upside down in the city of Rome. So they looked at him and says, if you keep telling people that Jesus rose from the grave, we're going to crucify you like him. And he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. And they obliged. But he was in Rome. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. So once again, Peter and Matthew are in the same place. They're both being killed for their faith as missionaries, as taking the gospel to different places and two different countries. John, the beloved disciple, he actually survived an oil uh, boiling. He's the only one that there was an execution that took place to fulfill what Jesus was uh, said about him in John chapter 21. Uh, he survived an oil boiling. The people who did that were kind of scared a little bit. And so they exiled him to an island of Patmos where he died there. Bartholomew was flayed to death by a whip in Armenia. Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Thomas speared to death in India. Um, Matthias, who, who took Judas' spot, he was stoned and beheaded. Uh, James was beheaded. Philip was crucified in Phrygia. James, son of Alphaeus, beaten to death by a club. Thaddeus, he was preaching the risen Christ in Mesopotamia among pagan priests who actually beat him to death with sticks. Simon the Zealot was put to death by Saul. All of these guys, different places, put to death 
and every single one of them refusing on their last moments to say, we stole the body. It was a lie. We got rid of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is alive. They, they went to their death proclaiming the truth that Jesus defeated death. And so for us, if you look at the life of these disciples, granted, the group of disciples that on Good Friday running from their life, distanced from Jesus as far as they could, not wanting to do anything with them. Peter, the leader of the group, literally cursing and screaming when a young girl comes and asks if, she, if he knows Jesus, right? And all of a sudden, he's willing to be crucified upside down in Rome. What happened? The empty tomb. That's what happened. It changed everything, and the entire world is upside down because of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says it this way, And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. As we celebrate today the resurrection of uh, this week, as we think through the celebration of Jesus, we realize this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundational linchpin of our faith. And everything within me says He is alive today, and He is to be worshipped in the power of the resurrection we find through Him in every day in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope these help you. I hope they really just sort of ground your head and your heart as we enter into this Holy Week remembrance. Take the time to read the end of the gospel accounts this week. Just to really pour into God's word to know this Jesus who came, lived as a man, died on the cross, and was raised to life, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back one day for us. Let's get ready.